This is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com. Welcome back to the Legislature Today. I'm Randy Yoey. Bob Brunner is away this week. Tomorrow is what the Legislature refers to as Crossover Day. That means that every bill, with exceptions for budget bills and supplemental appropriations, has to be out of its chamber of origin or it cannot be considered. So today was a busy day of moving bills. Tomorrow will be just as full. Meeting that deadline does not guarantee bills would be taken up in the opposite chamber, however. A public hearing in the House chamber this morning focused on a bill that would enhance oversight of the West Virginia Fusion Center. The center gathers information on potential foreign and domestic terrorist threats to public safety and critical infrastructure. So House Bill 3157 would clarify security clearance and the duties, reporting requirements, prohibitions and restrictions applicable to the Fusion Center. Three people spoke at the public hearing, all in favor of the bill, all concerned with unconstitutional invasion of privacy and possible government investigation misconduct. We hear from two of those who addressed the House Committee on Veteran Affairs and Homeland Security. You've answered the question, who watches the watchman, by taking the onus upon yourselves as our representatives to ensure the actions taken by the Fusion Center are appropriate. Additionally, we support language that clarifies that data gathered by the Fusion Center can only be for legitimate law enforcement purposes and subject to the protections of the Constitution and relevant state law. It's really scary to think, well, what, what if we have this Fusion Center with absolutely no accountability, which I guess is what the status of it is right now. So it sounds like this bill is not perfect, but I am here supporting it. Um, and I think it's your obligation as the representatives of the people. We're the ones, we're the ones that are supposed to be protected by the Constitution, not law enforcement, not not the government, not government officials. So I think it's a start. House Bill 3157 has not moved from this committee for a month. Now Tuesday was E Day or Environmental Day in the state legislature. Various statewide and local organizations came to lobby lawmakers on a variety of issues. Some came as individuals representing concerns specific to communities. A few lawmakers stood with them. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's energy and environment reporter Curtis Tate brings us the story. Delegate Danielle Walker, a Monongalia County Democrat, rallied environmental groups and her fellow legislators on Tuesday. Groups such as the West Virginia NAACP lobbied in favor of community solar. That bill has been introduced but hasn't gotten a hearing yet. The PFAS Protection Act, in contrast, stands a better chance of passage. 
Heather Sprouse of the West Virginia Rivers Coalition explained how the bill would help improve water quality. The PFAS protection bill sets, um, it requires industry to report and monitor the level of PFAS that they're discharging into the water systems. It also requires us to make action plans to deal with the PFAS that's already in the 130 municipal water systems that currently test positive above EPA's health criteria. And it also requires DEP to uh, set maximum discharge limit, limits once the EPA recommends them. Others came to highlight other environmental issues or community impacts that state government could address. For West Virginia State University student Ryan Kirkpatrick, it was pollution from a Union Carbide plant and institute, specifically a cancer-causing chemical called ethylene oxide. The main thing that brings me here today is discussing the issues of ethylene oxide, especially in particular in the institute area. And kind of what's going on there is uh, a lot of cancer is being caused for like the citizens, and also it's just an eyesore in the communities, and especially where it's like a lower income and you know predominantly like especially institute uh, African American like historic. Um, it's kind of like a spit in the face to kind of have those like big plants in our neighborhoods um, kind of like taking over and making things like a little more challenging, a little more unsafe, a little unhealthy. And also I go to West Virginia State University, which is right beside um, the chemical plant. Corey Chase of the West Virginia Highlands Conservancy urged the State Division of Highways to consider an alternate routing for a new section of Corridor H. We've been advocating for a route to go north of Davis and Thomas and not go between the two towns, not cut through a bunch of uh, non-motorized trail systems and future trail systems uh, going near the Blackwater Canyon, historic coke ovens. There's multiple reasons that we want it to go around the towns. Um, so we think that the DOH is kind of, uh, you know, plugging their ears to the public input and they've got their mind made up, but we're, we're uh, still going to push for a northern route. Environmental groups in West Virginia know it's a heavy lift getting their policy priorities through a legislature that favors fossil fuels and industrial development. Ultimately, their goal is to see green, the color of lawmakers voting in favor of the environment. For the legislature today, I'm Curtis Tate. A bill that changes how candidates for office across the state announced their intent drew close to an hour of discussion on the Senate floor today. Chris Schultz has more. Senate Bill 541 is simply titled Providing for Election Reform. It creates a requirement that, as part of their certificate of announcement, a candidate swears they are legally qualified to seek and hold the office they're running for. Senate Judiciary Chair Senator Charles Trump, a Republican from Morgan County, used filing to run for Senate as an example, but the bill would require the Secretary of State to include the specific qualifications for each elected position on the relevant certificate of announcement form. When you file uh, your certificate announcement to run for office for the Senate uh, of West Virginia, you're going to have to swear under oath that you're a minimum age of 25. That's what our Constitution requires, that you've been a resident of the state for five years. That's what our Constitution requires, that you've been a resident of the district in which you're running for a year. And what we're asking the Secretary of State to do is to, uh, for certificate of announcement for each office, delineate what those statutory or constitutional criteria are. Um, the bill requires that you certify that when you uh, make your announcement. The new requirement stems from the case of a candidate in the 2022 Republican primary for the state's 8th Senate District who was placed on the ballot but was ruled by a court to not meet the minimum residency requirement for the position. 
A judge ordered that votes for the candidate not be counted, sparking claims of judicial interference in the election process. Senator Eric Tarr, a Republican from Putnam County, asked about the bill's new limitation on suits regarding election eligibility. The bill would require suits to be resolved before absentee ballots are distributed or be dismissed without prejudice. Around the, the, the polling places around the state, that a court required signs to go up and say that your vote for a candidate who is on the existing ballot cannot be counted. And so was, as they interfered in that election, would this prohibit, as we pass this today, if we vote yes, would, would it prohibit the court from interfering in that way once a candidate is on the ballot? In that case, uh, I think the decision was made, uh, rendered, after the absentee ballots had been distributed and balloting had already commenced and uh, early voting, perhaps, and absentee ballots. So if this bill were operative now, with the same time frames that occurred in that case, I think the answer would be the court would have to dismiss the case and wait until after the primary election had occurred. Senator, Senator Mike Wolfel, a Democrat from Cabell County, also stood so to clarify that if the bill passed, a candidate who was found to not meet requirements could face criminal prosecution. I believe it will cut down on situations where people are playing fast and loose with their residency. And, you know, there are always rumors going around about this person did that or doesn't really live there. And they could, it was, it was a very vague area of the law, very vague. So now you, you're going to swear on a document executed and tendered to the Secretary of State and made a public record, you're going to swear an oath that you have lived in that district for one year. And if you have not, you're subject to a criminal prosecution. The bill passed on a vote of 28 to 5, with one senator absent, and now goes to the House of Delegates for its consideration. For the legislature today, I'm Chris Schultz. The House of Delegates approved a bill today that would limit how much compensation a worker can receive if he or she is injured on the job and can prove their employer deliberately made the work environment unsafe. An example would be the incident like the Upper Big Branch Mine disaster in 2010, where 29 miners died in an explosion after safety violations were repeatedly ignored. So, House Bill 3270 would amend the deliberate intent statute to limit non-economic damages to $500,000 in these kind of cases. While debate on the issue lasted for only about 10 minutes, some lawmakers, such as Delegate Sean Fluharty, a Democrat from Ohio County, spoke heatedly against the bill. Upper Big Branch, we had willful violations of safety standards. That's what's required for these types of situations. It's not like you just go file a case all willy-nilly and you can easily meet the burden that's necessary. It's extremely high burden. And we're going to allow the bad actors, the bad actors, not accidents, the bad actors who intentionally allow these things to happen because they don't want to follow the rules and people die. And we're going to save $500,000. The bill's lead sponsor, Delegate John Hott, a Republican from Grant County, was the only lawmaker to speak in favor of the bill. The original version of the bill limited the damages to $250,000, but was changed in committee. Uh, the bill before you, certainly as a committee substitute, was not my original desire, but I believe it to be a step in the right direction. I believe it to be um, a bill that we can move forward. 
and I ask for your support. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The bill passed narrowly with 52 yeas, 45 nays, and now goes to the Senate for consideration. The United Mine Workers of America has come out in opposition to this bill. There was spirited debate in the House chamber today on House Bill 2953, a locality pay study bill meant to retain in-state employees now crossing the borders, but it failed by a vote of 42 to 56. House Bill 2953 would have created the Commission on Cost of Living Adjustments and a Locality Cost of Living Adjustment Fund. The Commission was tasked with designating the five counties most in need of locality pay adjustments in a report to the legislature. The haves and have-nots debate focused on eastern panhandle job retention and the concern from the coal fields and elsewhere over preferential treatment. Here are two delegate statements, pro and con. I live in Jefferson County and I have talked with um, literally about 7,000 of my constituents. They are loyal West Virginians. They want to work in West Virginia. They simply can't afford it based upon the cost of living uh, in my area, in my district, in, in my county. Um, they work in, in most cases in Maryland, in West Virginia, in Pennsylvania, uh, or in, in uh, Virginia. We need to be a team. There's 100 players on the team, not five. And there's five counties that will be there. There's 55 counties in this state. And the thing of it is, is the top five and the next five never touch the ones in the south. The ones down at the bottom, which is Wyoming, McDowell, Mingo, boom, they never see none of it. Over the weekend, the Senate passed a bill making changes to the Public Employees Insurance Agency, known as PEIA. Like health insurance everywhere, expenses keep increasing, but the state program hasn't kept up, causing state hospitals to declare they would no longer accept the program. So the bill that is headed to the House of Delegates includes premium increases, which Governor Jim Justice has previously said he would not accept. Chris Schultz speaks to Fred Albert, president of the AFT West Virginia, and Delegate Matthew Rohrbach, the Deputy Speaker of the House, to understand these bills. Thank you, Randy. I'm joined now by Delegate Matt Rohrbach and uh, AFT President Fred Albert. Thank you both so much for being on the legislature today. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. us. Thank you for having us. So as Randy just told everyone, you know, we're here to talk about PEIA. Uh, Delegate Rohrbach, it's only been a couple of days since this uh, bill came out of the Senate, but what does the House think so far? Well, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a complex bill and, and it's, it takes a while to digest something of this size, but it's going to get a due hearing in the House, I can assure you of that. Now, uh, PEIA's, the benefit plan, the health benefit plan, with some life insurance, and we can talk about that, but uh, for our state employees. And we want a solid, well-funded program that providers will take. And I think what prompted the Senate to come up with Senate Bill 268 is uh, we don't have stable long-term financing. And we've also had some providers stop taking PEIA recently. And that's quite concerning to the legislature because if I give you a benefit and nobody takes it, have I really given you a benefit? It's an excellent way of putting it. I am curious before uh, we hear what uh, Mr. Albert has to say, uh, the Senate did pass uh, a bill specifically 
dealing with the issue of hospital reimbursements at the very beginning of the session. Uh, the last I checked, that's still sitting in committee over in the House. Uh, what's going on with 127? Well, the, I think as we'll talk in this, if, if 268 passes, the, that incorporates all of that. I see. So that, that is part of this bill, is that the hospitals, the acute care hospitals, uh, not the critical access, but the acute care hospitals have been, been getting reimbursed about 50 to 60 cents on the Medicare dollar. And frankly, uh, Wheeling served notice to the state they weren't going to take it after 1st of July. Right. And I think there are several other hospitals looking at that. That is just way below their cost of care. So part of Senate Bill 628 is that it raises the reimbursement uh, for healthcare providers to 110% of Medicare. Now, the outpatient and the providers were at about 108 to 109%, so it's a trivial change there, really a rounding error. But this, is a, this puts into the hospitals an extra $40 million a year, and then there's another 10 million that goes into other uh, non-outpatient healthcare providers, the biggest one being your EMS. So there's a substantial increase in this for the EMS departments, uh, durable medical equipment, things of that nature. So everybody's going to 110% of Medicare. Well, it's certainly uh, reassuring to hear, but it hasn't quite just passed yet. And uh, that's why, Mr. Albert, I'm curious to hear before this passes, before it becomes law, what are the teachers that you're representing uh, thinking and hearing about this in the last couple of days? Well, thank you for asking that question, Chris. And, and to what Dr. Delegate Warbach said about, you know, this is a benefit, not just to teachers uh, and service personnel, but we are included in that group. There are 230,000, about 230,000 active participants in PEIA. And in many cases, this was a benefit uh, over the years given to us or enhanced uh, because we didn't get pay raises for many, many years. And so we had a good health care plan and we want to keep that going. And we have said for a number of years now, uh, we've got to find a financial fix for PEIA. PEIA itself, the public insurance for uh, public uh, insurance for our employees is not broken but it does need to be financed. We need a financial fix. And we've often said, bring us to the table as participants because we have some ideas of how we can find a long range funding source and that's what needs to happen. We also realize, and, and we, we, we wanna thank the governor for what he has done since about 2017, we have not realized a significant premium increase. We know that at some point we are going to be expected to have some more skin in the game and a premium increase is inevitable. But to hit us all at once with a pretty large premium increase is going to be hurtful. Uh, we know that this is also tied into a pay raise. So uh, there's still a lot of unknowns. I'm glad that it's going to the House and we're hoping that there'll be discussion on the House floor. Uh, when it does come there for a vote. But there was very little discussion on the Senate floor side and um, no opportunity really to have much discussion. It was just presented Saturday and passed out of the Senate. So we're hopeful that when it goes to the House for discussion that a lot of our questions are gonna be answered. 
So Delia, we'll, we'll take it right back to you. I mean, um, as Mr. Albert just said, we've heard from the governor for years now, and he's backed this up with money, $100 million uh, every year for several years now, no premium increases. Is that something that, first of all, is gonna be a sticking point to getting this bill to pass? And second of all, something that the House might be looking at, uh, maybe making those premium increases more gradual than all at once? Well, a couple things to amplify what Mr. Albert just said. I can assure you this bill is going to get a full hearing in the Committee on Finance, and then it'll get a full hearing and debate on the floor. Good. So I can assure you that this bill will probably be taken up in the Finance Committee as early as Friday. Uh, that I can assure you. Now, the problem is if we make no changes and we keep going as we've done, as you alluded to, uh, direct revenue transfers. This year's transfer would have to be $154 million because you say, well, why do we have to make transfers? Well, right now, the five-year plan that's put out with the finance board says that they're not accounting for any premium increases. Now, the problem with that, under an 80-20 plan, is for every dollar that premiums go up, the state's obligation goes up $4. That's the 80-20. Right. Now, so we can't really put extra state money other than through reserve fund money. Now, one of the things you're gonna see in this plan is that is probably the worst way to do it because you walk away from a lot of payroll is through 32% of the state's payroll is either through special revenue or federal revenue where we can offset those costs and it doesn't come out of the general fund. So you're gonna see a new funding mechanism for direct transfers. There's still gonna be transfers, mm -hmm. but they're gonna be done in a different way. And as a for instance, in the 24 budget, uh, we're gonna transfer $113 million, but it's uh, only 77 million is gonna come out of the general fund and 36 million is going to come out of alternative sources to get the money in that the PEIA program needs. So there are some things that we're looking at to do the transfers a lot different than we've done in the past because frankly we've walked away from a lot of money that was available through other sources by doing direct transfers. So there's a lot of different angles to this plan that the Senate has presented us with. But if we did nothing and we go as we are in 2027, which is only three plan years away, right. the finance board's uh, gap mm -hmm. is $422 million. And that is just an unsustainable direct transfer. That, that, so what we're looking at, if we fail to act, this is workers' comp 2.0. And so failure to act is not gonna be an option. But I think the plan, as I understand before us, seems like a well-thought-out, well-financed plan to get this back on a stable course. And uh, the lowest part of it, the lowest part of the new money is actually from increase in premiums. So, uh, but again, for every dollar we increase premiums, the state's putting in four. So, I mean, you mentioned that this bill is gonna come up in finance, House Finance on mm -hmm. Friday. 
there's about 11 days, 12 if you're counting this day that right. we're speaking on. Yeah, who counts? Uh, Who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> but I, I, the point I'm trying to make here is that time is now a definitive factor. Right. Um, are you confident that this is going to be able to make it out to the governor's desk by midnight on the 11th? Oh, I'm very confident that, that we've, we've got more than enough time to get this bill done. I mean, we cannot let the benefit plan for our state employees that 230,000 covered lives are under fail. That, that's just not going to be an option of this legislature. I can assure you that. So we are going to chart a course to get this back on a financial course that it needs to be. A couple other major parts of this legislation. We are going to give the finance board fiduciary responsibilities and training how to act as such so we don't get back in this shape. Also, to me, one of the biggest pieces of this piece of legislation is that we get a consultant that will be engaged by the 1st of July to come in here and do a one-year evaluation of where our plan's at currently and where we should go in the future to keep this from happening again. So th there's a lot more to this bill rather than just financing. Well, that's certainly very true, and we are just scratching the surface on what is a very complex piece of legislation that is going to impact, as we were just discussing, hundreds of thousands of people in the state. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Uh, and I just want to take this moment to thank both of you for being here and helping us understand this a little bit better. Thank, thank you, you both so much. And thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. Back to you, Randy. Thanks for that, Chris. Tune in to the legislature today, Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. We'll have more news and interviews from the 2023 legislative session. And remember, West Virginia Public Broadcasting is covering the session daily on our radio news program, West Virginia Morning, and on our news site at wbpublic.org. We also broadcast the daily floor sessions of both the House and Senate on the West Virginia channel, and we stream those on YouTube as well. I'm Randy Yoey. Thanks for joining us. Have a great evening. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, building futures close to home at campuses in Morgantown, Kaiser, and Beckley. Information at wvu.edu. Embassy Suites by Hilton Charleston, an all-suite hotel and conference center minutes from Yeager Airport and Capital Market. Reservations and brasserie dining information available at hilton.com. Segra, providing fiber-based communication solutions. Segra, freedom to grow. More information at segra.com.